0: Welcome to the Time Out Bulls podcast, driven by Lexus. Visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the full lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Our guest today on Time Out Bulls is Doris. We all love Doris, and we're talking about Doris Burke. And I don't think anyone who comes across Doris doesn't come away feeling better about themselves, but more importantly, feeling good about our profession in the sports broadcasting world. She has played. She knows what she's talking about. She has beaten the gender rap about, well, women don't know the men's game. No, 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 no. Let me tell you what. I will rank Doris Burke with the very best of the best of the best when it comes to analyzing basketball. And I'm talking all basketball, NBA, college, different programs. Doris Burke is a winner. So let's go with Time Out Bulls featuring the great Doris Burke of ABC and ESPN. So Doris, before we get into your career as um, a terrific sideline reporter and host and basketball analyst, I want to talk about your career for a moment because a lot of people who follow the NBA and see you with your many duties and responsibilities don't truly realize and appreciate the college basketball player you were at Providence. So give me an idea when you first picked up a basketball and who really got you into the sport.
1: Uh, I probably first picked up the basketball when I was seven years old. We had moved from New York to New Jersey. Uh, for my father's job, and there happened to be a basketball court, literally, next door to me. And so, to be honest, Chuck, I remember being a kid and watching uh, Dick Enberg, Billy Packer, and Al McGuire call college basketball on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, and I would literally, uh, we had this set of bushes in the front of my house, and I had won this purple jacket in a free throw shooting contest, Chuck, so I would watch the games, pick up my ball, put on my jacket like it was my warm-up, and run through the bushes like if the guys were coming out on the court. And I have been playing, coaching, watching, uh, or now broadcasting basketball for as long as I can possibly remember, which is pretty cool.
0: Wow. You know, it's interesting. You should mention uh, Dick Enberg, Billy Packer, Al McGuire. I was doing play-by-play for DePaul, and – In those days, folks, college basketball, now we have a plethora of games every week. I mean, you could have three, four, five a night. But back in the late 70s, 80s, television, college basketball brought you maybe a couple games on a Saturday, one on a Sunday, and it always featured on NBC, Dick Enberg, Al McGuire, Billy Packer. And that was the marquee game to the point, Doris, where when DePaul was on national TV with Coach Ray Meyer, who was beloved by everyone, as you know,
1: that, that loved them, yes. absolutely loved him.
0: Yes, and and I mean the 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 fans and the players, the DePaul players, Mark Aguirre, Terry Cummings. It was a big deal back then.
1: It was appointment television. You know, you can flick on a TV at any night over the course of the winter now, and you could get any number of games. If you've got league pass, you could get countless games between all of the. The networks that now have it available but you're right i mean i set my days as a you know probably 10 or 11 year old to you know the times i knew college basketball would be on that was absolutely appointment viewing for me
0: now now basketball as far as women are concerned young ladies um when when you played give me an idea what the climate was as far as coaching interest in the game and also as far as the encouragement you receive from your parents or from people in that circle?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm the last of eight children, very Irish Catholic family, you know, very working class. And, um, you know, I was never discouraged from sports. You know, there were a lot of connotations and innuendo for any woman who was uh, a an athlete back in those days but my parents did nothing but encourage me and uh you know i was fortunate i i feel as though early on uh, my elementary school coach just drilled the fundamentals into us we, we couldn't get the gym chuck until after the boys basketball team had practiced but we would he would make us go into the cafeteria move the tables around and uh we would just practice ball handling drills and, you know, making right-hand, left-hand layups, and my high school coach was exceptional. And so I was exposed very early to a high level of teaching, and as you know, that's crit- critical. Uh, I'm sure there's some NBA franchises who would appreciate, uh, you know, heavy emphasis on on, on fundamentals. Um So I think obviously, you know, when I was a college basketball player, the only people in the building were your boyfriends, your family, your friends. There wasn't a lot of people, frankly, watching the games, uh, Chuck, unless they were personal friends or acquaintances. So it's really pretty cool to me to be a part of final fours now for women's college basketball, where those venues are sold out. And there seems to be a growing appreciation for the level of basketball being played. And I, you don't have to look very much further than the Connecticut women's basketball team to find sustained excellence and something, to me, that's truly admirable.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's incredible, the success of that program. And here in the Midwest, as you know, Doris, Doug Bruno with DePaul, I mean, year after year after year, his club gets it done.
1: And he's, the thing about Doug is uh, kids want to play for him because You know, his style is an awful lot of fun. He's going to give you a ton of freedom on the offensive end of the floor. The pace is going to be, you know, fast. I just, I I so enjoy Doug because he, to me, has great perspective, not only on the game, but what college should be for athletes. You know, I think he tries to get his women to soak up and absorb um, every aspect of campus life life, and all the things that college should mean uh, to an 18- to 22-year-old young woman, so... You know, if I'm a parent, he's absolutely a program that I would look at because uh, just because of the man Doug Bruno is and the kind of coach he is.
0: You know, Doris, for our listeners here in the Midwest that uh, are listening to our podcast on Bulls.com with Time Out Bulls, uh, especially in the state of Iowa, as you know, the state of Iowa has had a long history, a great history of women's basketball uh, at every level. And I'm wondering, when you went to high school in that tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, that pocket, mm-hmm. uh, what was high school basketball like when you played, and how did you propel yourself into going to Providence? Uh,
1: so, recruiting obviously wasn't uh, to the level it is now, and that was a vastly different thing when I was uh, you know, coming up. So you were recruited by schools in your area. Any school in New England, BC, BU, Providence College, UMass, all of those schools recruited me. To be honest with you, I was the uh the second choice. Um, Providence College lost out on the point guard that they had hoped for um to Villanova. And she played alongside Shelley Penny father, so for any of your women's basketball fans, great Villanova player, won the Wade trophy, you know, the highest honor. And so it's interesting. I got my scholarship at Providence College strictly because they struck out. Life has a funny way of getting you where you need to be sometimes. Uh, there can be a happy accident. Uh, so I've always I felt very lucky. I originally committed to UMass. Their coach, uh, it, it changed and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to, to land on my feet at Providence. I always teased Billy Donovan that he was the second best point guard in the class of 87 at Providence College. <laughs> But, but the truth of the matter is, only my physique was better. Billy, Billy's in much better shape now than his first couple of years of Providence.
0: Yeah, well, again, you know, Doris is talking about Billy Donovan and the Friars who went to the Final Four under Rick Patino, of course. And Doris, in her own right, I mean, she's in the Providence Hall of Fame, was a great player, not a good player, but a great player. What was college basketball like when you played as far as not only the competition, the attendance, and also because you were in that window with the men's team uh, how was there competition involved? what was there a rivalry between the two programs?
1: Oh gosh no you know uh, you know distinctly different time and uh, we were friendly with all of the men's basketball program because they would we would practice essentially right after them and if you want to talk about uh, a, an absolute blast for a college student at a school the size of Providence College which is probably now at 35 to 3600. Uh, students. It was probably 3,200 when I was there. But imagine a young, brash New Yorker by the name of Rick Patino, who really, I believe, Chuck, I don't think I'm incorrect on this, might have been, along with Lefty Drizel, one of the first to have a Midnight Madness. And, you know, there was just after two years uh, of struggling at the end of Joe Mullaney's career, who was an absolutely brilliant coach, and just, he just struggled a bit down the stretch of his tenure at Providence. Uh, but how exciting that was for all of us, because we saw how hard those men worked. You know, we understood the time they put into to, to their craft and how much it meant to them just to be a part of that magical ride. I went to New Orleans for the final four. It was absolutely just a special, special time at that school.
0: And, and here you are. You're just a kid coming out of Providence now we have the WNBA but back in those days of course there was no such thing as the WNBA were there options for you to continue playing and did you or as your life journey took you to what place?
1: Yeah so I did have an opportunity to go overseas um, I could have gone to Ireland and but the, literally the last game of my senior year in the last 10 minutes we were a running team you know averaged high 70s and that time, that was, you know, high scoring and uh, literally the last 10 minutes of my career. I go to catch an outlet pass and, and pivot, and I blew out my knee, mm. both the ACL and MCL. And at that point, the surgeon said, you, you need to make a decision. We can we can basically repair this in a, such a way that it doesn't need reconstruction, or if you're going to play, we're going to have to reconstruct. And at that point, I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And uh, uh, and lucky, within, within almost uh, 18 months of that decision, I was back at Providence College as an assistant basketball coach for a couple of years.
0: Really? Have you ever second-guessed yeah. yourself?
1: Uh, you know what? A little bit, Chuck. I really miss coaching in this respect. Um, there's something very special about working with a group of individuals um, towards something greater than yourselves. Um, you know, the competition, the work that's necessary, uh, and to do it with people who, you know, you care about, who you like. And I loved coaching. I truly, I loved it. But I was an assistant at Providence College. My days started at 7 a.m. with individual instruction, and my, you know, probably my last duty ended about 9.30 at night when recruiting calls were done. And while I was coaching Chuck, I, I became engaged and I knew I wanted children. And I thought, you know, there were some women who could pull that off and had done it gracefully. I just didn't think I could do both jobs to the level I wanted uh, while being married and, and being a Division One basketball coach. So I ended up uh, leaving coaching, having two children. So I don't obviously I love, you know, Having my kids was the greatest joy of my life, so I don't regret that aspect. I will say I miss coaching uh, very much.
0: Well, Doris, if I can stay on this subject, and then we'll talk about broadcasting, obviously, because you're a pioneer and uh, and are leaving on a yearly basis, an indelible mark for a lot of young people coming into the broadcast business, want to emulate what you do and how you're doing it, which is important. At the end of the day, substance you know, is, is what our business is all about. But, you know, a lot of uh, men and women tell me who have been uh, a coach or attained a great deal of success as a player and then they get into broadcasting, they say the biggest thing they miss is when they leave the arena as a broadcaster that they didn't win and they didn't lose and they miss that competitive fire that it's, it's a fraternity as a broadcasting family, but it's not a team. as far as players and galvanizing all these little, you know, rivers and streams that become an ocean, if you follow what I'm saying. And so, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just wondering, because you're such a high profiled individual, you could always go back to coach, I would think you could get any interview you want for a head coaching job, if you so desire. And maybe that's down the road, who knows?
1: yeah, you know, I do think about that. What's next? Uh, sometimes. I'm very lucky to be to be around the game, and I have been fortunate to have been in broadcasting at a time where where the acceptance of women is drastically different than say twenty years ago. And I know that, Chuck, because there will be times where I'm in an arena and I'll have you know just a young man, and I'm talking, you know could be thirteen to eighteen. And they no longer think it's foreign to have me as an analyst on the NBA. Mm -hmm. And that's truly, that's truly progress. Uh, And I I couldn't have concur more with the, the former athletes, right? Because they're again, and I would say it goes more to the relationships and the striving towards something that you find to be meaningful, which, which would be, you know, the pursuit of championships. And that's, by its very nature, the pursuit of excellence. Uh, and, and those opportunities are, are truly special. So, you know, I have been very lucky. I think uh, at some point when I'm all said and done with this, uh, I wouldn't mind coaching a high school boys team, believe it or not.
0: <laughs> no, why, uh, so why, why high school boys?
1: Um, you know, when, when I was an assistant coach at Providence College and just prior to leaving, Rick Barnes was the head men's basketball coach at Providence. And there was, he was throwing a team camp, and there was a coach from one of the teams that at the last minute had a family emergency, and so I spent basically two weeks uh, with two of his teams, so basically his his varsity and then his JV team, and it was just two of the most fun weeks. I I had a blast. They responded to, to my coaching. They truly seemed to enjoy it. And, uh, and so I never forgot that. I never forgot that. But who knows? Listen, I'll be honest with you, you know, my life has hasn't gone as I expected. I thought I would be a high school uh, teacher and coach when I, when I left high school and, and look where I am. It's It's been truly an accidental uh, career for me, but one that's been really, really, uh, you know, meaningful and enjoyable.
0: All right. So that, that, that brings us to the next chapter in your life, Doris Burke. As far as broadcasting, um, not easy to get into, uh, but but you've made it and you made it big time. But obviously there's a, a starting point. Where was that starting point?
1: So the year I left uh, Providence College coaching, um, they decided to put Providence Women's Basketball on radio. Um, and the uh, the athletics director at that point was John Marinato had gone on to be the associate commissioner of the Big East and, and then the commissioner and when they decided to put women's basketball on radio they said they came to me and said what do you think you've played here you've coached here do you want to give this a try and uh, so that would have been 1990 and I said sure I'll give it a try and uh, literally every year since that point uh, bit by bit moment by moment um, you know my career has just grown and I again I'll I'll say I had some lucky breaks along the way. Keep in mind that in 1990, coverage of women's college basketball was growing. You know, gender equity issues were, were becoming increasingly important to, to schools, to, to conferences. Within a couple of years of that, Chuck, uh, the Big East decided that they were going to put their women's basketball teams uh, on television and then in 1997, with the advent of the WNBA, I would say that is the first year, 1997, where I legitimately was a full-time broadcaster and could make a living with the, the money I made in the summer doing WNBA and the money I made in the winter doing college basketball, men's and women's. Um, that was the first time where where I could make a living doing exactly what a Bill Raftery or a Dick Vitale or any number of color analysts uh, do
0: now. All right, so so take me then to the point where you're doing your first men's game, either at the collegiate level or the NBA level. And if you can recall, what are some of the hurdles that you had to, to leap over, so to speak, to get to the point where you were accepted? Because not a lot of women, as we know, Doris, have been able to, you know, achieve what you've achieved. And it, it's a tough fight. There, At times, there is a double standard, let's be honest. I mean, a man makes a mistake, it's no big deal. A woman makes a mistake, you know, it's in a radio-TV column. So give me an idea about about your first game where you called a men's game.
1: So, interestingly, and I know you know Mike Gorman very well, the voice of the Boston Celtics television package, you know, Mike had uh, some ties to the area in New England. Uh, Obviously, he was the Big East broadcaster there for a time and worked at ESPN early in his career and when you know he heard me on radio and saw you know a women's basketball game that I had done and he said to me i think you have potential at this and i would very much like to help you so in 1997 he encouraged me to get an agent and to try to become involved with the WNBA which i did with the New York Liberty And then in a twist of fate, how about this? If you remember, ESPN had ESPN regional television back in the day. We didn't call it ESPNU. It was something entirely different. And Mike was supposed to call the Big East Saturday game. On this particular Saturday, it was Pittsburgh at Providence. And I had spent the morning in the hospital. My son had fallen off a weight bench in my basement, needed six stitches over his eye. And I was married to then the associate athletic director at Providence College, who also was the sports information director. And when we got home from the hospital at maybe I'd say about 10:45 a.m., there were all kinds of messages. uh, Could Doris make it to the Civic Center? So Mike Gorman uh, had told the producer, you know, well in advance he couldn't make it, but through miscommunication or just some slip of, you know, transferring that information. The game is an hour from tip. Ronnie Perry was the color analyst. Mike should have been the play-by-play, and Mike didn't show. Mike was in another city doing another game. And they called me literally an hour and 15 minutes could I get to the gym and call the game. Now, at that time, Chuck, I was a basketball, you know. The Big East was my conference. That would have been a game I would have attended or at the very least watched on television and the only thing I said to them was, I'm happy to do this, but could you ask Ronnie to slide to play-by-play, and allow me to do color because it's the only job I know. And they did, and I think it went well enough that a year later, you know, ESPN Regional decided to give me a small men's package, and the the neck from that. Uh, and this is always one of the, the bigger breaks I talk about. There's a man by the name of uh, Bob Stites. His father actually is the one who pushed so hard for the three-point line in college basketball. But Bob Stites was the associate commissioner of the Atlantic 10, and the Atlantic 10 had their own television network. And back, I want to say, in 1999, he went to Mike Brain, another man you know, and said, listen, here are the three analysts I'm thinking about to call the Atlantic 10 men's basketball package. And Mike looked at the list, and he said, well, he said, if you want to know the best analyst on that list, it's Doris Burke. He said, but I'm not sure you want to walk into your coaches and tell them you're about to hire a woman to be the Atlantic 10 broadcaster. And Bob Stites, the intrepid spirit he was, decided, if Mike Breen believes she's the best, I had the same instinct, I'm going to hire her. And he did.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Time Out Bulls podcast driven by Lexus. The Bulls aren't the only ones with a long season. We all know the Chicago winter can be long and challenging as well. But with 22 all-wheel drive models by Lexus, you don't have to be stuck inside. Visit your Chicago area and Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive today. Lexus all-wheel drive, your antidote for cabin fever. Wow, that is a great story. Man, that is fantastic. Uh, the NBA, Doris, how did how did that? turn into something where now you are a featured player on abc and espn
1: well i the first break i got was uh again involved and it came about because of the wnba association uh at that time madison square garden obviously uh you know one of the leaders in regional television networks obviously everyone has their own now that's of, of very high quality but for a long time msg was setting the pace and the then leader of MSG, uh, Mike McCarthy, uh, listened to me on the, the Liberty telecast and said, listen, we think you're pretty good at this. And if Clyde Frazier ever needs a fill-in, we'd like to hire you to do it. And, Chuck, I'll never forget it. It was Milwaukee. It was a game. Jeff Van Gundy's coaching. It's New York at Milwaukee. The assistant coach at the time was Terry Stotts. And thankfully, because can you imagine how afraid I would have been calling my first NBA color game? How nervous I would have been. But that week, thankfully, I had about four other games, and I was flying into Milwaukee that morning. I knew Jeff Van Gundy because he was a graduate assistant at Providence College under Rick Pitino when I was a student there, and I basically, you know, they the the, the announced team. Mike Green said, "What do you need?" And I said, could you get me together with an assistant coach from Milwaukee? And they promised to get me in front of Jeff Van Gundy. And both of those guys, you know, helped me prep. And that was my first exposure to color color analyst work. And I'll say this to you, you know, there's big concern. How would the New York media writers and all of the papers react? And they were they were pretty okay with me. So <laughs> that was my first exposure. Mm. And, and literally, I I think through the course of the years, Chuck, you know, you just, you gain a little bit more of credibility and certainly equity with the players and the coaches. And then your bosses see how the players and coaches react to you. And that's the one thing I would tell you. Is there some, have I seen some some things, some, some questioning looks and, and maybe some exceptions and certainly social media can be an ugly place. Of course, of course I have. I don't think there's a woman in broadcasting who, who has not. But the interesting thing for me, and it's been the one thing that has buoyed me through every difficult moment where perhaps I have encountered something ugly, is the players, the coaches, the general managers, the scouts. In fact, I was at Kentucky Pro Day last night, and it is all of the basketball people who have been my soft landing spot. They've never had objection to my presence I think they've accepted me because the game is important to me. I love it. I'm passionate about it. And I would say this to you. I once heard a story from Susan Waldman about a really ugly incident that almost made her leave the business. And it was the reaction and treatment that she got from another player in baseball who literally turned the tide. And so I would just say all of those interactions add up and are important uh,
0: over the course of time. All right. So, Doris, here in 2016-2017 season, do you feel that as far as how the league, how the players, coaches, you're no longer okay? Gosh, we have a female here, and she's roaming the sidelines, or she's doing you know color work on on this game. That that those days are over, or is there still a stigma? Um, maybe not necessarily with you or other female women that are trying to knock on that door to break that barrier?
1: You mean inside the lead, Chuck, or outside?
0: Or just the general, uh, do you feel that there will always be a second look or do you feel those days are over?
1: Well, I certainly think there's progress yet to be made. Um, You know, listen, we... And one of the things and I know ESPN, um, you know, some people love us, some people hate us. The one thing I'd say about my company is, you know, they have been willing to place women who they believe, you know, have the abilities to do it. They've been willing to put them in roles that are non-traditional. But there are certain sports um, where, you know, we haven't seen the same breakthrough. And I would mention the NFL. And I know Beth Mullins would would love to be a part of NFL coverage. Does she get an opportunity there at some point on a full-time basis? She's called a couple of preseason games for the Oakland Raiders over the last couple of years. Um, I think it's our job and our responsibility. I know I feel this way. It is my job by the way I conduct myself at every practice, press conference game, what I say on the air, how I handle myself off the air, what my interactions are with players, coaches, other broadcasters. It is my job, Chuck, to make the woman who comes behind me make her path just a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Always tell young broadcasters, be as prepared and be as professional as possible. That's your job. And, uh, And the woman who comes after me will go further than I will, because that's the natural order of things. You know, it's the way it should be. And um, uh, so I feel completely uh, accepted. I don't feel from the NBA side of things ever from a coach, a player, or anyone inside of that league, broadcaster. uh, I, I never feel anything but complete acceptance, and it's almost as though gender has gone out the window because we're there for the game.
0: Well put. Doris, in the final couple of minutes we have, and you've been very gracious with your time, and I know our listeners sincerely appreciate it, let's talk X's and O's for a second regarding sideline interviews. Do you, do you enjoy being an analyst or a sideline reporter? And what are the differences, and what are some of the challenges you face as a sideline reporter?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, as, a, as, as the analyst, you are far more heavily involved in the broadcast. And that is my favorite position. I think it's the one I do best. Um, and it's it's the most fun for me. Sideline reporting came about as an accident. I grew up in the business as an analyst. Uh, but there was a time where I wanted to be part of the Women's Final Four. And the great Ann Myers was the analyst. And so I wasn't, that was not an option for me. She was going to call the color. And I went to the bosses and I said, I'd like to know if I can be a part of this as a reporter. And they said, yes. And so immediately I had to call Michelle DeFoya and say, how do I do this job? And, uh, you know, she and Al Troutwood gave me great advice over the years. And I think your listeners would find this probably a little bit surprising. And, you know, reporter, I think people associate me mostly with it because, you know, I'm, I'm at the conference finals and the finals, and those are our most viewed. And, To me, it's one of the more challenging positions on a telecast. And here's why I say that. You know, the sideline reporter is as in tune with the game they are. They've read all the stories. They've talked to the players and the coaches. They've put in the same amount of preparation. I guess that would be a better way to say it. They've put in the same amount of preparation as the play-by-play and the color guy. The challenge is you have to be willing as a broadcaster to, to have a thousand storylines in your pocket, then you have to be able to implement those and to press to be a part of the telecast at only the appropriate moments because there's an art from the production standpoint and an art from the sideline reporter position to work in concert to hopefully elevate the, ta- the, the telecast by maybe adding on to something that the main team has said or by conducting an interview where you're asking the kinds of questions that hopefully the fans at home want to hear the answer to. And you've got to have an impact on a telecast and maybe a 15 to 25 second window. And, you know, sometimes there's chaos around you when you're conducting interviews, you know, somebody's just hit a game winning shot or it could be a conference finals game of great consequence. And, you know, you've got to keep calm and, and try to keep your thoughts together and to be able to adjust on the fly. Um, so I think, you know, sideline reporting is view that may be the last area where I would love to see more respect for the position, um, and especially on the diff staff side, right? You know, um, I think there was a time certainly in broadcasting, and I don't think this is going to shock anybody, where you know, it was mostly attractive young women mm-hmm. who maybe you know, came at, came at the sport from, you know, just wanting to be in television as opposed to maybe being passionate about the game. Now, I don't care how you got there. You just do the job once you get there. I think the times are changing a little bit.
0: Well, I hope so, Doris, because I'm, I'm going to share a story. I won't mention her name uh, because she is a few years out of school and I mentor young people and we were talking about sideline reporting. She said, Chuck, you know, I don't think I can, I'll, I'll be able to make it as a sideline reporter. And he said, why not? She goes, well, I'm not 5'11 and blonde. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. and, and, right. and I said, well, hopefully those days are over uh, because I, I think we have enough people who hire these um, very bright, talented men and women to see through this because, I mean, Doris... You are, you know, you you have set the the bar, and it's very very high in the NBA, men or women. I mean, the way you handle yourself in these playoff games. I mean, they'll tell you in your earpiece, Doris, you know, you got three questions, and those three have to be like ninety five mile an hour fastballs. They can't be fluff. And you get right to it, and you do a great job. But I, I would Thank hope. You. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm not patronizing you. I'm just being honest. I mean, here you got LeBron. Ten seconds after they just won a championship, or after a big game, and you know the millions upon millions of people are watching, and and you're prepared, you're ready to go, and it's boom, boom, boom. Thank you, and a pleasure. Back to you, Mike. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough. It's a lot tougher than people think. People think, oh, great, you know, he he, someone's gonna have him come over to you. You got the questions. This is work. It's tough. And plus, you know, I'm sure. Some of the coaches during the game really don't want to talk about what's going on because they're down by 14 early in the second quarter. I get that, but you know what? You keep your cool, and I think that's part of the job, is it not?
1: It is. I think so, yeah. You're certainly trying to keep your, your head in the midst of, as you say. Um, and listen, you try to be respectful in those moments, Chuck, where, you know, say I'm, uh, I'm going to interview Fred Hoiberg, and he's gone from up. 15 at the end of the half to now he's facing a four-point deficit at the end of the third well he's going to be frustrated he's going to want to coach his team and so yeah you've got to be on point because you want to be efficient and a lot of times in those circumstances I'm going to ask one question I'm going to respect the situation respect the fact that this guy wants to go do his main job and listen I I get it uh the reality is um, television and the NBA work in concert with each other. We're seeing these salaries of coaches and players balloon, in part because of the television money, uh, and and so there is a responsibility from the players and coaches side of things to to give access to the fans who cannot, in some ways, are insatiable uh, for information from from their favorite teams. You, you see it with the Chicago fan base; they want to be immersed in the Maloo of their team, and the more our questions facilitate opening windows for them to get a glimpse, you know, the better off we w- we're going to be with our job. So, I've always thought whether I'm sitting in the analyst chair or in the sideliner or, or reporter chair, I was once that kid at seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, watching those announcers. And I never dreamed of being a broadcaster because. Believe me, in college, I had it all going on. Bad hair, bad clothes, bad teeth. My only concern was, could I get a jump shot to match my dribble drive shot?
0: <laughs> no. But, <laughs> Doris, wait a minute. Doris, I've seen a video of you with a wraparound dribble during a playoff game. I think, uh, what was it, Memphis? or? Uh,
1: they... It was Memphis Golden State, yes. yes. Yes.
0: You see? So there you go. Yes.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, you—I know—you feel a responsibility as a broadcaster to do the best job possible for the Chicago Bulls fan. I'm the same way. I'm just trying to get these fans as close to the game as you and I happen to be lucky enough to be.
0: Well, you endorse know, there. There is, um, you know, the, the the Cubs are playing so well, and they're the the talk of the city, obviously. And we had a preseason game the other night against Indiana, which went directly directly against the Cubs and the Giants. And someone was saying, well, it's just a pre... My approach is this. There's no dichotomy between preseason game number three and a playoff game. None. The preparation is the same. Your focus is the same. Your passion is the same. Your enthusiasm and energy is the same. Because to me, if you start allowing yourself it's just like a player, Doris. When you play for Providence, you can't play to the scoreboard. You play what's on the floor right then and there in
1: that moment. And Correct. It's it's Professionalism is about habits. Whether you're talking about an NBA player, a broadcaster, a coach, it's habits. You know, I always tell my kids, so the little choices you make every single day are what your life will basically amount to. You're going to make little choices every day. You're going to put in the time, the work, the effort that it takes to be successful, or you aren't. It's one or the other.
0: Exactly. Well, Doris, this has been great. I appreciate you sharing with us uh, on Bulls.com, our Time Out Bulls podcast. And I'm sure we'll see you down the road with the Bulls on a national game with uh, either ESPN, of course, or ABC.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck.
0: Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see the extensive lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Don't let Mother Nature conquer you this winter.